Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. All right, today we're beginning a brand new series called Relationship Goals. And look at your neighbor and tell them, buckle up. Because it's about to get rowdy in here. And if there's anything at all today I say that offends you, to God be the glory. <laughs> and I am going to warn you right now, you are not going to like this sermon today. All right. But if you have a problem with it, you can just take it up with God Almighty. He wrote the scripture. I'm just the messenger. All right. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, we're going to look at the life of Abraham and Sarah and extract powerful relationship lessons through their life. Genesis 12, 10. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him. And then we can have her. So please tell them that you are my sister. And then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Verse 14, and sure enough, when Abram arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarai's beauty. And when the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king. And Sarai was taken into the palace. And then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her, sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys and male and female servants and camels. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. Why have you done this to me? He demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why didn't you say she's my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and get out of here. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them. And he sent Abram out of the country along with his wife and all of his possessions. Let's pray one more time today. Lord, we love you. We honor your word. We believe in the sanctity of your scripture, that it was God breathed and inspired for correction, rebuke, and the edification of the saints. I pray that this morning that I would decrease and you would increase. May I be hidden behind the message of the cross and may your word shine brightly as a light before men. Convict our hearts and draw us more into your image and likeness. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. So just to recap this story just a little bit clearer, first of all, there's a great drought, a great famine that sweeps through the land of Canaan. And Abram and his wife, Sarai, which they would later become Abraham and Sarah, 
they flee to Egypt. And as they approach the border of Egypt, Abraham begins to get a little nervous because he knows that his wife, Sarah, is very beautiful. And apparently back in the day, if you had a really beautiful wife, they might just kill you and take her. All right. So he comes to the border of Egypt and he says he concocts this crazy plan. He says, now, listen, honey, I know you look fine and everything, but I want you to tell them that we're related. Tell them that you are my sister so that they'll treat me well and good luck to you. All right. So, and sure enough, they get into Egypt and that's exactly what happens. People are infatuated with her beauty. They lead her to Pharaoh and you heard the rest of the story. Pharaoh sharply accuses Abraham. He's like, why would you lie to me? Why would you pass her off as your sister? And uh, that may sound like a strange and obscure text, but that's where we're going to hang our hat today as we begin this series, Relationship Goals. The first lesson that I want to extract from this text is she is either your sister or your wife. Look at, <laughs> look at your neighbor and help me preach. Say she's either your sister or your wife. <laughs> Already off to a rough start. There is no gray area here. All right. She, the Bible is saying she's one or the other. All right. And first Timothy chapter five says that we are to treat older women as you would your mother and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sister. It's getting quiet in church today. In other words, you know, the Bible doesn't make any accommodation for your girlfriend, the one you're talking to, the one you're thinking about talking to, or even your fiance. According to the scripture, it's black and white. And until she's your wife, you need to treat her like you would treat your sister. So don't be doing things with her that you wouldn't be doing with your sister until she's your wife. And yes, I am from West Virginia. You're welcome. <laughs> That's, that was wrong. But if she is your wife, you can do married things with her, a.k.a. you can sleep with her if she is your wife. But every other woman on earth, you cannot. And you are expected by Scripture to treat them like they are your sister. On that altar, man, when you said I do to your wife, you said I don't to every other woman on earth. And ladies, the same is true to you. When you said I do to him, you said I don't to every other man under the sun. In a marriage relationship, you can love and treat with each other with affection and love and all those things. But if you're not married to them, scripture tells us that we are to treat them as we would our sister. All right. Remember that these are God's children. She is God's daughter and he is a protective father. All right. At least time out. Hopefully you are dating a Christian. People get mad at me. The YouTube people hate me for this, but good morning to you. Um, as a Christian, you are not to be unequally yoked. We'll talk more about this in the series to come, but that means that you are to date a Christian. Why? Because they won't see the world the way you see the world. An unbeliever looks at life through a totally different lens and perspective than you do. They don't see raising children, spending money, devoting a life and family together. They don't see the world the way we see the world. 
We look at it through the lens of scripture. And by the way, the reason that Christians should date Christians is because the living don't date the dead. And unbelievers are spiritually dead. So you're welcome. Good morning. She is God's daughter and he is protective of her. He loves her. He sent his son to die for her. Treat her with respect. I wonder, would you say the things you're saying to her if you recognize that God was with you in that car? I wonder, would you say the things to him that you're saying to him if you realize that he is God's son, God's child? The reality is the overprotective daddies on earth can't go on the date with you, but the Holy Spirit, he's in there. So treat her with love and respect. And until you're married to her, there should be boundaries. And you should treat her like you would a sister. Married men, let me talk to you for a minute. The flirtatious female coworker, yeah, the one you're not married to, yeah, treat her like a sister. It's getting quiet, man. It's getting quiet. Don't even think about her in that type of way. No matter how tempting it is, don't give in to temptation. Don't even think about her like that. James chapter one, beginning in verse 14, says this. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. The scripture is so powerful. First of all, um, we always blame the devil for our temptation. We're like, well, the devil's sinner. You know, the devil's messing with me. Homie, the devil's not messing with you. That's you messing with you. James said we're drawn away by our own lust, our own passion, our own desires lead us away. You blame everything on the enemy. You over-spiritualize everything. But the truth is you and your own heart are desperately wicked and leading you away from God's plan for your life. But the most important takeaway from James 1 is this, that before sin is ever manifest in the body, it is first conceived in the mind. People don't one day spontaneously commit egregious extramarital affairs on their spouse. It doesn't happen just spontaneously out of nowhere. No, that started long ago in their subconscious, in their mind, in their thought life. A thought came into their mind and they entertained it and they replayed it over and over and over again until eventually that thought became real life and actions and behaviors. I want to warn you today that before sin is ever committed in your body physically, it is first conceived in the mind. Second Corinthians chapter 10 tells us this, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God. God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down every imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. In other words, you can't control every thought that enters into your mind, but you can control what you meditate on. You can control what you dwell on. And so if you want to live a holy life, if you want to live a godly life, you want to have a godly marriage, a pure relationship, it starts in your mind. Do not allow yourself to dwell on these perverse and lustful thoughts. Expel them from your life. And that is truly the first step to victory in your life. If you, scripture says, neither give place to the devil, resist him and he will flee. 
If you give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. You give him a little bit of residency in your thought life, he will eventually ensnare you. Scripture tells us that sin starts in our mind. So don't look at her that way. Don't look at him that way. And don't think about him and don't look at, it. Don't look at him that way. Matthew 5, 28, these are the words of Christ. Listen to this. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious crowd, who were a little bit self-righteous and pious. They thought they were doing pretty good. They focused on the external things and the opinions of people. And in their own estimation, they felt like they were pretty holy and pretty righteous. They were like, well, I have never committed an affair. I have never done that. And then Jesus just goes and ups the bar. And he goes, well, if you've even looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you are guilty of committing adultery with her. And now all of a sudden, all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus is showing us that sin is more than just the decisions we make, the actions that we partake in. Sin is a posture of the heart. That even our thoughts can violate us. Even our thought life is considered sinful. We must take into captivity the thoughts that oppose God's will and purpose for our life. By the way, you know, a lot of people hear a sermon like this and they think that, well, God is just being legalistic and unrealistic and this is not fair. Why does God really care about my sex life? Why does God care about sin? Why is it such a big deal? Well, I'm going to tell you why it's a big deal, because sin is like a cancer and it is killing you. It is killing you spiritually, physically, mentally, and emotionally. You are dying a slow death when you partake in the sin of this world. If we sow of the flesh, of the flesh we shall reap corruption. God's wrath blazes towards sin because sin is killing you. God loves the sinner, he hates the sin. Imagine a parent whose child is diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer. That parent would not coddle or tolerate or enable that disease. That parent would have a righteous anger, a righteous indignation that burns against that insidious disease. Why? Because they love their child. God is not being legalistic, unrealistic, or evil or cruel to you. No, God loves you, and he despises the sin that is the undoing of his creative work in you. People look at the Bible as this book of rules and laws and restrictions that are meant to keep you from living your best life. Well, let me encourage you with this. Scripture is not here to stop you from having fun. Scripture is here to show you the abundant life. And it is found in following Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I've tried the world and it's empty. Can I get a witness of somebody who believes his way is better? His way is better. Let me talk to the men in the room for a minute. You want to be a godly man. You want to follow Jesus. You want to be a light in the darkness. Then you should not be flirtatious with women who are not married to you. You say, oh, it's harmless. We're just having fun. No, stop it. Your wife does not appreciate it. Godly men are not flirtatious. They are not provocative and they are not inappropriate towards women. 
I need you to understand today that that is not conducive of the life of a born-again Christian. I'm not saying that you are called to be perfect, but you should be set apart. Your life should be distinguished and different from this world. If you look like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, and we can't tell you apart, I would have to wonder, are you really born again or are you a part of the world? Because James said that faith without action is dead. In other words, people who are truly born again, people who truly believe this gospel, their life changes. No, we're not perfect, but we're far from who we used to be. There should be a shift in your life. Men, we must walk with self-control. We truly must. And just like sin begins in the mind and in the heart, so does faithfulness, so does loyalty, so does a good standard of living. It starts in our mind. May we have a paradigm shift in our thinking today. And let me tell you something, life, at the end of your life, it will not be measured by how much money you made. It will not be measured by how much fun you had. The measure of a great man is based on his commitments and his faithfulness and the legacy that he leaves. So let's, let's be faithful. Let's be committed. For better or worse, till death do us part. For richer or poorer, let us be faithful. And let us be faithful always. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says this, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Can we give God praise for that verse right there? Come on, somebody. Let's give him praise for that right there. Philippians 2, 13 is astounding. It's a promise that a counselor, a therapist, or anybody else or any other religion cannot offer you. A therapist, a counselor, they can give you great advice and direction, and I'm about it. I'm for it. I'm not against it. But a counselor can't change your desires and a counselor can't empower you. Oh, but the living God whose Holy Spirit dwells within you, he can change the desires of the human heart. Do you hear what I'm saying to you today? God Almighty can change the human heart. And I pray for every one of us and myself included that the Holy Spirit would take the taste of sin and lust and pride and greed out of my mouth and may I hunger and thirst for righteousness. May he change the very desires of my heart. For too long, the church has taught behavior modification. Don't, don't drink, don't smoke, don't sleep around. Don't do this, don't do that. And what we've done is we've taught behavior modification where people fake it, but they do it behind closed doors. Jesus didn't teach behavior modification. He taught heart change. He wants to remove that heart of stone and give you a new heart. Former things pass away, all things become new and giving you new desires that bring glory to God. And scripture says, not only will God give you new desires, but he will give you the power and the ability to walk in his victory. And just so you know, God changes some people's desires in an instant, in a moment, in a prayer. He can do it in an instant. But for many, he changes our desire over the course of our lifetime. I'm just a little more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. And I'm not the man I want to be, but I'm not the man I used to be. And over the course of my life, he is changing me and molding me like the potter shapes the clay. This is the word of the Lord. And by the way, if you don't like this sermon and you don't like this first point about treat every woman like your sister unless you're married to her, I got some advice that'll help you. How about men don't date her aimlessly for seven years? 
All the women said amen. All the single ladies, amen. You know, that was your opportunity to just amen that. <laughs> you know, if you look for dating verses in the Bible, you're going to have a real hard time finding them. You know why? Because in the biblical culture, um, everybody was your brother and sister until you betrothed them, until you were engaged to them. Now, listen, I'm not saying that we need to pop the question on the first date. But I am saying that we should date with intentionality. We should date with a purpose. And if you don't know what that purpose is, let me help you. The end goal of every dating relationship should be to end in marriage. The M word, marriage. Like dating is not so that you can just be preoccupied and have somebody to chill with. Like. Dating is not so you can have a good time and live it up. No, no, you date with a purpose. Christians, we do not take our cues from the culture. Broad and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go at it. But the way that leads to life is straight and narrow, and few there be that find it. We don't live like the world. We don't follow the world. The world is governed by Satan. Plain as day. Just open your eyes. We're a part of a new kingdom. We live in a new direction. And dating in your life should be done with intentionality, with a purpose, with the end goal of marriage. All right? And by the way, I'm going to be the first one to sit up here and tell you that I have dated wrong and I've dated right in my past. Finally, with Christina, I got it right. But up until then, I had it wrong too. So you're in good company. And I'm not preaching to you as somebody who has mastered it and perfected it. I'm preaching God's word to you and myself this morning together. All right? And the truth is, I'm preaching to you a message that I wish somebody would have preached to me many, many years ago. In fact, in 2017, a preacher who was faithful to God's word did speak this type of word into my life, and it forever marked me and changed me. And shortly thereafter, I was serious and committed and intentional and met Christina, and the rest is history. Glory. Hallelujah. <laughs> the next thing I want to show you is self-sacrifice is greater than self-preservation. Self-sacrifice is greater than self-preservation. Think back to the text in Genesis. Abraham approaches the border of Egypt and he's like, hey, listen, you are looking really good and that's wonderful, but they're going to kill me. So you tell them that you are my sister so that they can treat me well. Abraham was thinking only about himself. He was like casting her to the wolves. He's like, well, good luck. <laughs> you know, uh, excuse me, Abraham, hold up. Relationships are not built on self-preservation. They're built on sacrifice. Selfishness is costly to those who are closest to you. And Sarah paid a great price for his selfishness. Your selfishness and you being self-absorbed hurts those that love you the most. Wow. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 the scripture tells us the secret ingredient to great, lasting, vibrant relationships. It's Ephesians 5, 25. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. The secret ingredient to a long-lasting, healthy relationship is sacrifice. Yeah. 
It is sacrifice. The greatest marriages on earth are comprised of two people who both give sacrificially. Listen, every relationship on earth, whether you're dating, talking, which I don't like, engaged or married, every relationship falls in one of three categories, okay? And if this is convicting to you or your spouse, just look straight ahead at me. Don't make a facial expression, okay? Just straight ahead. Number one, there are relationships that exist with two takers. Both of them are selfish. Both of them are thinking like Abraham about self-preservation. What can I get out of this? How can this benefit me sexually, emotionally, relationally, financially? The worst relationships on earth are comprised of two takers, two people who are only out for themselves. That will leave both of you empty, drained, and frustrated. The second type of relationship is comprised of one giver and one taker. One person who is generous, who is selfless, who is sacrificial, who is serving and giving and always yielding their will to someone else's. And the other person is a taker who's always happy to take from you. That relationship dries up quickly because the giver ends up empty. Ladies, have you ever dated that guy who was just a taker, but he never contributed? I guess not. Okay. <laughs> They're out there. Trust me. All right. And then the third category of relationship, which are the healthiest, are comprised of two givers. Two people who selflessly, sacrificially put the needs, wants, and desires of their spouse or partner ahead of their own. That is God's plan for marriage. That is God's design for relationship. And the secret to truly healthy relationships is sacrifice. Now listen, the fallacy that the world often imposes or that we worry about is that, well, if I sacrifice, if I yield, if I give all, if I'm always giving, then I'll be left empty. But the opposite is true. Scripture tells us that in sacrifice, we find fulfillment. If we offer up our life, that's when we truly find life. See, the world says you just need more, more, more and hoard it all up and be about you and you be the center and the focus. But we all know how that ends with you empty, miserable, and frustrated. But because listen, you are a spiritual being and there's a spiritual law at work in that when you sacrifice and you give, you are satisfied and you are fulfilled. This is the word of the living God. And by the way, if you're in a relational crisis right now, the fastest way to peace is through sacrifice. Husband, let her control the thermostat. Just put a coat on. By the way, if you're, in, if you're a single man, you will never win that battle. You're going to be cold or hot the rest of your life. But hey, at least you won't be lukewarm. Jesus spit you out. All right. So, hey, <laughs> you're not going to get to control the thermostat and you ain't picking a restaurant for the rest of your life. I promise you. Christina will be like, where do you want to eat? And I'll name off three things. She'll be like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And then it's like until I guess what she was thinking. Then it's like, yeah, we're going there. But no, in all honesty, my wife truly is, she is, she naturally sacrifices for me. She truly does. I'm the one that had to learn. I'm the one that when I got married, I realized how selfish I really was. 
And the truth is, is that God designed marriage to sanctify you, to shape you, to mold you, to expose you. You think marriage is going to change you. No, it's just going to expose you for who you really are. The truth is, I thought I was a pretty good guy. When we got married, I thought, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a servant. I'm a good, you know, I'm a spiritual leader. I'm a good guy. And then she's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and then I'm like, me? <laughs> so the truth is, I'm going to tell myself a little bit um, about sacrifice. Because when I was dating Christina, her love language was words of affirmation. Right. So if I told her you're beautiful, your business is crushing it, you're doing a great job, she would like flourish. She blossomed with that. But when we got married, things change. And yes, love languages change. <laughs> and that don't work anymore. Oh, babe, you look beautiful. You're amazing. She's like, OK, what? Her new love language is acts of service. <laughs> Wash those dishes. Change that diaper. Get up at 2 a.m. and get that baby. <laughs> and I'm convinced my wife loves to watch me put IKEA furniture together. I think she buys that stuff just to watch me suffer and put it together. She loves acts of service. All right, and I hate IKEA. When I see a box at my door, I am overwhelmed with anxiety. I'm like, I rebuke you, Satan. <laughs> the box. The box. I got to stay out of trouble. They record this one, all right? <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, my wife had a conversation with me that really caught me deeply a few months ago. She said, Tyson, you preach to the church that they're called to be contributors and not consumers. And that is true of every disciple. And she said, Tyson, you do a great job at the church. You give your very best to the church. But when you come home, you're empty and you give us what's left over. That conversation cut me deeply. And I realized really in that moment that I can't just be a contributor here. I got to be a contributor when I come home and I can't come home on empty. I can't come home and give her what's left over. I got to go at the house and treat it like my worship. And I got to give my best. I got to. So now when I get home, I still may be tired, but I'm gonna be like, give me that baby right now. <laughs> I'll put that thing together. You know what I mean? Because that's sacrifice and that's how she feels love and true that's when our relationship is at its best. And husbands, just a little word of advice, or future husbands, just a little word of advice. If you do an act of service and you complain while you do it, it nullifies the action. You can't be like, well, I hate this thing. I, this stupid chair. I, you know, you're working too hard to mess it up now. Just be like, I love you, babe. <laughs> The greatest marriages are comprised of two givers who walk in sacrifice. And truly, God designed marriage to be hard. And it is difficult. And it is work. But marriage makes you more like Jesus. He is a giver. He is the ultimate sacrificial offering. And so the act of sacrificing makes us more like him. Moving on, Genesis chapter 16, verses one through five. For the sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase this. But the point here is sex was made for marriage, period. One amen, half of an amen. Sex <laughs> was made for marriage, period. 
period. In Genesis chapter 16, we see where Abraham and Sarah have already received a promise from God that they will bear children who will then be more numerous than the stars that illuminate the heavens and the sand along the seashore. And as they grew older into their ripe old age, they began to grow impatient, waiting on God's promise to come to fruition. So Sarah comes up with the idea to Abraham, hey, why don't you sleep with Hagar, my servant, so that she can be a surrogate mother and bring forth this child and bring about God's promise. And Abraham agrees. He's like, I think that's great. Abraham, <laughs> Abe, you should have known better, bro. So they have sexual relations and Hagar, Sarah's servant, becomes pregnant and now dysfunction and confusion become evident in that family and community and it ends in disaster. By the way, just so you know, the son that Hagar birthed was Ishmael, who became the father of Islam. And still today, her seed through Ishmael still wars and fights against the seed of Sarah, who is Isaac, the father of Israel and Judaism and ultimately Christianity. They still fight over real estate and ideology to this day. It's a dangerous thing to try to fulfill God's plan your way. But the point here is that sex went outside of the boundary of the marriage of Abraham and Sarah. Thus, it resulted in dysfunction and confusion. Hebrews 13, 4 says, give honor to marriage. The King James Version says, give honor to the marriage bed and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. God designed sex in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. By the way, God is not the author of confusion. So if God is not the author of confusion, who is? Satan. What's going on in the world today is influenced by hell itself. You may not like me for saying that. You may disagree with me for saying that. But the truth is, I love you too much to just coddle you and make you like me. Yeah, Marriage is first revealed in the creation story in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were created to walk together in a covenant union and relationship. Sex exists inside of that boundary. When it escapes that, it creates dysfunction and confusion. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 says this, Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? So it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished. Proverbs 6 says that sex is like a fire. It's actually a profound analogy because both fire and sex are a paradox in and of themselves. Fire can bring life and warmth and vitality and comfort, but it can also destroy and bring death and destruction. 
Sex is the same way. Spiritually, it can bring life, both spiritually and physically. It can bring comfort and unification, but it can also bring vast division, discouragement, frustration, and death can come from it. It's a paradox in nature. Do you know what the difference between a fire giving life or bringing death is? Boundaries. Boundaries. Fire is a beautiful thing, so long as it stays in the fireplace. But you decide, hey, you know what? I'm bored with that. Let's, let's play with a little fire out here on the coffee table, you know? Let's see how this goes. You're going to burn the place down. The boundary was not there to keep you from living your best life. The boundary was there to keep you alive. And the boundary for sex is marriage. In that covenant and in that context, that is where you experience life in its abundance. But if you remove it outside of the context of marriage, you will find destruction. It will destroy marriages. It, trust me, when sex gets out of the marriage, it destroys marriages. It wreaks havoc on people's souls and relationships. You let it get out of the boundary and you watch the hell it unleashes. And see, you thought the Bible was old-fashioned and you thought that God was being cruel and unusually punishing you. No, God is showing you the way to life in its abundance. I know you've been alive for 23 years and you think you know everything, but let me tell you, you are not God. And the author of life, the creator of every good and perfect thing is telling you how life in its fullness is meant to be lived. And with all due respect, his way is better. Anybody believe today that his way is better? You believe it? You know, church, churches were famous for telling you, don't have sex, don't smoke, don't drink, don't, you know, we're famous for telling you what not to do, but rarely do we ever pause to tell you why you shouldn't do it. Well, today I'm preaching a sermon, so I'm going to tell you why. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 16 and don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, among many things, is telling you one profound reality. Sex is not a physical act, it's a spiritual act. You think that it's casual. You think that it's just a good time. But the reality is the Bible tells you that sex is more than physical. It is spiritual. It binds the heart of a person together. It is meant for the covenant of marriage to draw a husband and a wife together to bind them for life. I'm telling you, that's why your breakups are so bloody and so painful because you're doing permanent things with temporary people. Listen, I'm not here to condemn you, 
but somebody has got to speak the truth in love. There is confusion and there is chaos and the world has no idea what it is doing. The people who advise you from this world are the most miserable, empty, void people on earth. God's way is better. When will you acknowledge that his way, his plan is better? By the way, most often when sex occurs outside of marriage, it is driven by lust and not love. Oh, hear me, church. It is lust, not love. And there's a big difference between lust and love. Now, on the surface, it may be hard to distinguish which is it. Oh, does he love me? Oh, he loved me. No, he don't love you. He's lusting for you. I'm going to help you see how. You ready? Lust and love can be hard to distinguish, but here are a few qualifying realities. Number one, lust is selfish. Love is selfless. Lust is always in a hurry, but love is patient. In 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul, as he describes the characteristics of love, he starts with patience. Love is patient. It's the first virtue assigned to true love. If he can't wait for you, he don't love you. Oh, yes, he does. No, he doesn't. He loves him. <laughs> Y'all are like, I'm never coming back to this church. <laughs> well, at least you heard the truth while you were here. Your blood will not be on my hands. I spoke the truth, Lord. Lust is fixated on the superficial, the external, but love looks within. Lust is never satisfied, but love is content. Lust is a feeling, but love is a decision. I want to warn you today that following your lust will create dysfunction, confusion, and it can provoke intimacy problems in your marriage with your true spouse, your true husband, or your true wife. Don't live for the moment. Live for eternity. And by the way, Satan will do everything in his power to get you to sleep together before you're married, and he'll do everything in his power to stop you from being together when you're married. And for the men who you think, the single men, you think that your lust problem, your porn problem, it'll go away once you get married. No, it won't. If you don't face that demon right now, you will bring it right into your marriage. This is the word of the Lord today. And I'm going to tell you, sex is the great idol of America. Sexual perversion, it is the great idol. Many bow to it. They love Jesus until he commands them to obey. And by the way, the battle for your purity and your holiness happens before you're tempted. Make up your mind, set the boundaries in your relationship in a fully lit coffee shop with other people around, not while you're Netflixing and chilling. Because <laughs> you are at the point of no return. Bye-bye. So set the boundaries up front. In closing today, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, says that in spite of all of Abraham's mistakes and sin, the Bible calls him righteous because of his faith in the living God. I don't want you to feel condemned when you hear this sermon today because the truth is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
your relationship may have been stained with many mistakes till now, just like Abraham's. But I want you to know that if God could use Abraham, he can use you. And if God didn't give up on Abraham, God's not going to give up on you. And in Christ, former things pass away and all things are made new. In faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your past is washed away and you can start new today. You can start over today with a new trajectory, a new perspective, a new vision. You are not damaged merchandise. You are not lesser than. You are still loved and adored in the eyes of God Almighty. And the scripture says that if you would repent Confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Your sins will be forgiven. And just like Abraham was called righteous, you too can be called righteous, blameless, holy, forgiven in the eyes of an almighty God through repentance and faith today. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless. Thank you.